Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. Seeing a human skull in a shrine is not particularly unusual in Palermo, even today. In a side chapel in Sant'Orsola in the city center, there are three, all wearing plastic flower crowns among a larger mosaic of human bones. They're the relics of saints, many of whom were also martyrs. The bones are the venerated body parts that Catholics pray with in order to be closer to the holy dead. These relationships are intensely personal and sometimes quid pro quo. Promises are made by the living, and gifts are brought to the dead when prayers are answered. Once the Inquisition wasn't watching, the people of Palermo simply treated the skulls of the beheaded the same way they had long treated the skulls of more orthodox saints. Halloween kicks off the Octave of the Dead, eight days when Christians traditionally prayed for the souls of the departed. For this episode of the Image Podcast, I talked to Elizabeth Harper, whose essay, The Cult of the Beheaded, appeared in Image 102. In it, she explores one culture's particular history of praying with the remains of the dead. When Harper traveled to Palermo, Sicily, she found a story of popular piety subverting the intentions of the Spanish Inquisition and of nationalism, racism, and the ever-shifting sands of who belongs in the church, in the canon of the saints, and in your neighborhood. Harper started out writing about relics for places like Atlas Obscura and her own blog, All the Saints You Should Know. She imagined she'd be helping travelers interested in seeking out something off the official tour map and artists like herself who were drawn to religious sites. But as she wrote more about traditional Catholicism, she noticed that far-right, nationalist, and anti-Semitic readers began to follow and retweet her. In The Cult of the Beheaded, she attempts to unravel the complicated appeal of folk practice as both capitulation to and resistance to Christianity as state religion. She also talks in this episode about her favorite saints, official and not so official, about her work in the death positivity movement, and why we as Catholic memoirists should anchor our personal stories in our collective history, approaching the real horrors in the church with humility and contrition. Tell me about your work photographing and writing about Catholic relics. How did that start? It started actually on a trip to Rome that I went on with my ex-husband. And that was the first time I really saw people who were going to the churches because all of the best art and architecture is in the churches there. And a lot of people didn't know what they were looking at. The churches, sometimes things are labeled, often they're not. Some parishes feel like it's their place to teach people about sort of the aesthetic and cultural aspects of the building. And some think that it's really kind of not their job, that it's, they're there to, for the parishioners, which I don't necessarily disagree with. But what that means is there's sort of a jumble of art, architecture, relics in particular, so you have a lot of people coming in from all different backgrounds and all of a sudden they're looking at, you know, it could be a Bernini sculpture and then they're looking at a head in a box right. and trying to figure out what that means. So I knew what it meant because I, I grew up in an Italian family and a very Catholic family. Mm-hmm. And so I had learned about relics from, you know, the time I was little. I remember the first relic I saw and I started taking pictures and I thought, well, maybe I can just write a little caption and like put this on Tumblr. Mm -hmm. And so I had a Tumblr 
I'd met a couple of people who were sort of interested. The captions got longer, and my friend Colin Dickey, who like, oh, yeah. wrote a book about saints, yeah, he was not my friend Colin Dickey yet, but he had just written a book about saints, and I went to his reading, and I said, oh, yeah, I have this Tumblr blog, and he said, I, I think you should actually write, like actually pitch, and I, I hadn't even really considered it, so that's how I started. And is this what became your website? That's what became my website, yeah. com. Tell me about the reception to the pieces you were writing and where you were publishing them. What kind of places were interested in what you were writing about relics? The first place I started writing was Atlas Obscura. And, and that was, a, I mean, their audience is exactly sort of who I was talking to, sort of the, the traveler who wants something unusual, some cultural context for that unusual thing that they're seeking out. After that, I started being a little more interested in how Catholicism had shaped my own life and a little bit more self-reflective about that. Mm -hmm. So I started dabbling in sort of personal essay writing and uh, really examining why I was drawn to these things and a little bit about how the sort of idea of the body and Catholicism shaped my thoughts about my own body, my own death and things like that. As you continue to write about and visit these sites, did that play a role in you reconsidering your Catholic heritage and how it impacted you? Yeah. And now, you know, now I feel like my next impulse is to sort of take me back out of it, but look at the broader implications, the, the world implications of, of what does it mean to write about Catholicism? Like not just travel pieces, but what are the, what are the political implications of that? now and what can we learn from looking at you know a lot of what i write about is from like the 1300s to 1600s sort of your essay in image 102 is called beheaded and i will jump to that now because i think it's relevant to what you're saying here that what begins as a personal essay really becomes about something much more and i noticed that you tweeted the other day that there's been an uptick in nationalist trolling on some of your pieces. And I wanted to talk to you about that. I think that's so important to discuss right now. Why is a discussion of traditional Catholicism, which your essay is an essay about Sicilian folk piety, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe give us a little background Um, on the essay first, and then we can talk about this connection between traditional Catholicism and the rise of nationalism. Yeah, so I I was in Sicily last summer uh, in Palermo specifically for this part, and I wanted to see this church that's sort of on the outskirts of the city. Um, it's called the Church of the Souls of the Beheaded, and I mentioned it sort of casually to a guy who is at a sort of more typically touristic church uh, in the city center, and he was like, oh, you don't want to go there. Don't go there by yourself, and I was like, I... I'm fine. It's, it's fine. I kept pushing back at that idea. And then he finally just said it. And he said, you came all the way to Sicily, obviously. You should stay around Sicilians. And I realized what he was saying is don't go to an immigrant neighborhood, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty, unfortunately, uh, you know, not an uncommon thought or, or thing to say. Also, before that, I, because I write about traditional Catholicism, um, sort of, especially in Europe, I had noticed on my Twitter, well, or rather I hadn't noticed on my Twitter, that a bunch of people who wrote for Breitbart had started following me. Uh, but, you know, things get posted around. And I, 
I hadn't noticed that this block of people, yeah, had, had started following. And it was on Passover. And I, my boyfriend is Jewish. And I mentioned that we were, you know, preparing. I posted a photo of myself. All of a sudden, all of these anti-Semitic tweets and replies came out. And I started looking at who these people were that followed me. And it, it was these sort of far-right writers. I, that was the first time I had ever experienced anything like that. You know, That is I so interesting time- because I, I know you're an artist and you work in theater and your attraction to these practices of traditional Catholicism and folk piety, like you were saying when we first started talking, grew out of not only your own Catholic background, but also your knowledge and interest in art. You're going to visit art sites. And there's this really strange Venn diagram of artists who are interested in traditional practices for all of the, I I don't know, we can talk about what those reasons are, the theatricality of it, the mystery of it. Then there's this other group that you don't expect when you start getting into that world. And it's not that one of us takes these things seriously as religion practice and one of us doesn't. You know, I've been a practicing Catholic my whole life, but it's like, I didn't expect that either. I didn't expect that my interest and experience would be dovetailing with that particular group of very far right extremist traditionalists. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it it was a shock to me. And when I, I was, I had that in the back of my mind when I was in Sicily and then I, this person said something racist to me and I was thinking it wound up being that the souls of the Church of the Souls of the Beheaded is both tied to the Spanish Inquisition um, when it came to Sicily, which, by the way, like decimated Sicilian Jews, but also the idea that there used to be in sort of folk piety a message of hope and faith that ran contrary to the state's message. That it wasn't that the church and state went hand in hand. It was that the church was undercutting the state. So this is interesting. You've also said, I wrote down in my notes, that there are always two like strains of Catholicism. There's the official church and teachings and then there's the church of the people that's the folk church tell me a little bit more about that these two different churches so if you look at catholicism as sort of a monolith it doesn't really tell the whole story there's um there's what priests and sort of the the pope down says is okay it's very patriarchal and inflexible hierarchy and then there is all of this sort of uh, all of the folk practices, which is really where I think the Catholic Church becomes really interesting because that's the reason, one of the reasons it's been successful is it gloms on to whatever culture it comes in contact with. And so it can be everything to everyone. Yeah. And so all of these, you know, whether it's the type of Marian apparition you like or, you know, saints that have sort of doubles as um, indigenous are, you know, indigenous religious figures that came before them. There's a much more malleable, borderline magical practice. And what I like about that aspect of it is that that's where people's faith, I think, is expressed and, and nurtured by doing. That's what feels good to me. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel to the life of the artist as well. 
something I hear a lot when I talk to artists about their faith and their uh, religious practice. It's the idea that religion is made and it's also passed down. And we all, you know, mm -hmm. we learn, but this idea of religion as an act of creation, which I think is also very, comes from Judaism. I want to talk more about this idea that these folk practices spring up outside of official teaching. And that to me speaks to a more traditional Catholicism that was not always in touch or under the control of the magisterium in Rome. Catholicism kind of organically grows wherever the colonizer went and the missionary Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know about it or organically as much well, as they sent people out to. Well, it's forced upon the indigenous, right? But then the population, yeah. the Catholic population would kind of grow from there. And then the indigenous belief would mingle with the colonizers' beliefs. And then you'd get something completely different. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans, so a very, oh, yeah. in fact, like New Orleans, most people think of it as French and Spanish, but the Sicilian influence is very strong. So my Catholicism is very Sicilian Catholicism because of the particular neighborhood I even grew up in. It's just shocking to me that this is, these practices are so borderline magical, like you're saying. Where is that line drawn by those who call themselves traditionalists between like what is acceptable Catholic practice and what is magic or superstition? Like so many of these practices are what we think of as superstition or are scorned by both traditionalists and intellectuals. And, you know, so I don't know. I'm just interested to hear your take on that. I mean, it, it sort of, it always depends on who you ask, right? So like in my essay, I talk about how the, the Spanish who you know, no one's arguing that they weren't Catholic enough, are looking at the Sicilians, who also, no one's saying they're not Catholic enough, and they're saying that, the Spanish are saying that the Sicilians are doing Catholicism wrong, mm -hmm. and that comes from a place of cultural supremacy and colonization. I, you know, I think that po the power structure outside of religion has a lot to do with who does Catholicism right. Yeah. So you've described yourself as an optimistic agnostic. I read that somewhere, but I, you've, like you've mentioned, you grew up Catholic, you had Sicilian grandparents. I think I heard that you were the first altar girl in your parish. I was the first altar girl in my parish. That is so cool. Um, I mean, my parish did not allow girls to be altar servers, even in the 80s when I was growing up, which was well after Vatican II reforms. So I am envious. Yeah. This would have been in the in the nineties. What was funny about it is I I pestered our parish priest, really bothered him about why aren't there altar girls? Why aren't there altar girls? And then I finally was allowed to be one, and I was so bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I just I, I just have no memory for like what comes next. Like I'm not. There's a reason why I work off stage in theater. Like. <laughs> I had no idea. Like, I was joking on Twitter one day. I was like, our liturgy always had some, like, extra words in it, namely, wrong water, Elizabeth. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. It was just, I was a mess. So, do you still consider yourself Catholic? I, you know, I do. And I've actually revised the, you know, I used to consider myself an, op an optimistic agnostic. I say that I, I am Catholic. I think on, on my worst days, I'm an optimistic agnostic. I think the important part is to keep doing and keep making, you know, even when you're questioning and you feel like you're doing it wrong. Part of it came from this desire when we're talking about like, 
who says who's doing Catholicism right, to not let the people who are the, the most conservative or, you know, the most far right have a, have a, feel like they have the only right to call themselves Catholic. So there are, there are many ways to be Catholic. There are many schools of thought about it. And I, I've gotten much more into the um, traditions of social justice since, you know, since then and, and doing more serious reading around it. I have, I've started calling myself Catholic again. When you go on your trips for research or to write stories, do you consider it pure research or is this a religious experience for you as well? It's a religious experience for me. I mean, it's, it's everything. Like it's research, it's a religious experience, it's vacation. It's, it's really how I sort of collect myself. And it really, I find that when I take one of these trips, it, it sort of propelled me through the whole year. Wow. Tell me about one of those trips that was, that stands out aside from the experience we'll get to read about in Beheaded in your essay. I'd love to know when a time when you were particularly moved by a relic you've seen or a site you visited. One of the one of the times that's really it still moves me even to think about today is I well there's two actually. One is I was I was in Rome and I went to visit the body of St. Catherine of Siena, who I've written about before. She was one of when I first started examining my own relationship to Catholicism and the way I had, you know, struggled with a, a view of the body and, you know, being being a woman and someone that really resonated with me was St. Catherine of Siena, who at, at the time was this incredibly powerful mystic who still, you know, she, but she was essentially anorexic, but it was a holy anorexia. She, she felt that she could sustain herself with only the Eucharist, um, but she also had a lot of sort of mortifying her practices that she did to herself to to hurt herself and it, there was a, a real sense of struggle with you know how to how to cope with the idea of femininity mm-hmm. so i i went to visit her she's at this gorgeous church in rome that has this little like bernini elephant outside of it and i i just went there and kind of stood in the back and just I don't know, just meditated. And, and I felt like I spent some time with her. Like I felt like I was visiting her, like seeing an old friend. Wow. And then on my way out, the sacristan stopped me and gave me a little relic. Um, it's just, so there's different classes of relics. They're not all bones and flesh. There are third class relics that people touch cloth to the tomb. Mm-hmm. And so a little bit of the power comes off. And this was a little piece of cloth that was in a little gold charm that had a St. Catherine sort of stamp on the back. And he just gave it to me. And I said, thank you. And I, I didn't know how he knew to do that. I had been to that church a bunch that had never happened before. I, I think about that a lot. Do you still have it? Of, of course. To, I love what you say about Catherine of Siena. I read an essay that you wrote about her that I found and about her holy anorexia, which we also recently published an essay at Image Online by the writer Kirsten Sunberg Lundstrom. Yeah, and I, I'm so glad that you liked it. I, I love this discussion of the reality of anorexia being a spiritual 
reality as much as or possibly more than a physical reality for the sufferer. And you describe it as a desire for power, or you did in that essay. And I loved this quote from the essay where you wrote, Catherine once told God, here is my body, may it be an anvil for thy beatings. Thy was her and she was God all along. So I'd love to hear what you have to say about this idea of why the need for that power at the time and why that still resonates with you. First of all, with the, with the caveat that I think that I'm totally aware that looking at Catherine of Siena in this way is, is revisionist history, that, mm-hmm. that there, there was no concept of self-harm or anorexia or feminism the way that there is now. So it, it's not good history to think about it this way, but it is, I think, if the goal is self-reflection, I think it's a little more useful. You know, in our current situation and context, then they should be adaptable in that way? Yeah, I, you know, I think, but I'm saying, I guess I, I'm saying, I think it only sort of goes one way, that yeah. I, I can't apply my label to Catherine, but right. Catherine can, her feelings can resonate with me, and, and I can acknowledge that it's resonating in different ways that couldn't possibly be for her. Right. What I immediately understood about it was being in a sort of patriarchal society that one way to get, immediately get power is to say, I hate myself more than you can possibly hate me. And whatever rules you come up with for me, I'll do 10 times harder. I'll, you know, if you constrain me in a way, I'll constrain myself more. Mm-hmm. That's how tough I am. That was something that I was actively doing as a teenager. Mm. Could you say more about that? I mean, it's sort of the quintessential cool girl. You know, I don't have any, I don't have feelings. You can say whatever you want to me. I mean, I definitely struggled with anorexia and I felt like I was being rewarded for it. And I was, but mm-hmm. you know, there was this idea of this sort of icy, perfect, perfect girl who was like, you know, had this incredible self-control and that sort of white knuckle control came off as, I think, serious and sort of mature in a way. It's hard to argue that it's bad for you when you're being constantly rewarded for it. That's really powerful to me from the perspective of a woman in the church today. We're still fighting against the idea that suffering, particularly female suffering, is righteous in itself, is sanctifying in itself. And we could talk about why suffering is meaningful and how suffering can draw us closer to God. But this idea that when we suffer, we are holier hurts women. And I've seen it hurt women. I've seen it hurt me. The idea that if you follow those teachings and you suffer physically even, you know, offering it up, that suffering is what will make us holier. So in some ways, self-control and punishment of the body, or what we would see as punishment of the body, are held up as admirable. And we're given certain saints to provide us guidance or inspiration to continue to punish ourselves. I'm Jamie Smith, the editor-in-chief of Image Journal. And like you, I'm a fan of the Image Podcast, which is an audible feast. I hope you'll consider giving to our fall campaign so we can continue to set this table. Your gift, big or small, is crucial for our continued work. 
To give, visit imagejournal.org slash donate2019. Thanks for investing in art, faith, and mystery. Who's another saint that you love? The, the virgin martyrs in general are always interesting to me, but there's one version of St. Lucy's story, and she's the one who, if you see uh, a woman with eyeballs on a plate, that's St. Lucy. Also, her name, Lucy, is from the Latin for light, So, and her feast day is around the darkest day of the year in December, so she's the light in the darkness. So all of the virgin martyrs, the story is often the same. Their their dad wants to marry them off. They want to stay a virgin and be in the church, the early Christian church. And so they decide not to get married. And basically their dads kill them or have them killed. The same, Lucy meets this pagan who uh, her dad wants her to marry. She does not want to marry a pagan. He compliments her eyes and she plucks them out gives them to him and says, now leave me to God. Oh, lovely. I mean, these are all very, there's a million versions of her story, but that version of the story I think is incredible. I love that, you know, the the church, we see lauding the virgin martyrs and venerating the virgin martyrs for their preservation of their virginity. This is the story over and over again with female saints. But what you're drawn to is not necessarily the preservation of their virginity, but just self-preservation. Say more about that. Back in, back in the battle days, preservation of virginity could be also self-preservation in, in a number of ways. It, literally, that childbearing is, uh, is dangerous. And also the idea that, you know, if you were drawn to Christianity, if you wanted to commit your life, that marrying a pagan, and that, that, was, that was a spiritual death. Mm-hmm. Who are some lesser-known saints that you love? Lesser-known saints I love. I have a very soft spot for saints that aren't quite saints, folk saints, people who are unofficial, and and people who aren't quite saints yet. People who are have started the process of canonization but have never fully made it. But one of the folk saints who I love that I, I wrote about is Uncle Vincent. Uncle Vincent is a spontaneously preserved guy who was found in a church in a little town outside of, of Naples. And he, he's, not, he's not an official saint. In fact, the church has fought this little town to try and <laughs> get him out of the, this body, out of the church, and they oh just refused. They actually built him his own little building and keep him set up. He's totally naked, but people come and bring him flowers and charms, and he he will not go away. Um, but everyone just calls him Uncle Vince. Wow. Yeah. What's his story? What's the story behind Uncle Vincent? How did he come to be naked in this church? Uh, he was moved and moved and moved. But I, I want to say he was found while they were while they were excavating the soil, particularly around Naples. Um, is very good for sort of making natural mummies. You see a lot of them around that area. So they found this preserved body. There was a um, there was a plaque next to him with the name Vincenzo on it. So they decided that maybe that was him. For a while, he was decoration in this crypt that was dedicated to the souls in purgatory. So he kind of started off as this soul in purgatory, and that's 
that's actually a pretty normal thing in, in Southern Italy um, to have sort of the bones of or bodies of people who are anonymous or were picked up off the street or, you know, were part of certain confraternities or sort of, that's sort of a Catholic club that, that you would arrange the bones. And that would be part of the devotion to the souls who were purging out their sins in the afterlife before they could go to heaven. But then he would, he was moved upstairs next to, or rather across from the relics of a saint. And then people started sort of seeing him in dreams and, and he was allegedly calling to people and asking for things. So they electrified his part of the shrine and putting him across from the relics of a real saint sort of gave him a legitimacy. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some rogue priests who started printing uh, prayer cards with his image on it, which you can still get today. I have a bunch. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, and then, you know, various people tried to step in and, you know, from, again, all the way from Rome and say, you, you, ha you can't just have this random guy in your church. He's not a saint. <laughs> I, just, I, love the, I love the saints of the people. I do too. And, and this, the town was like, absolutely not. And so when they, when they said you had to move them out, there were a bunch of people from this particular town who had moved to America and done fairly well for themselves. So they sent money back and they built a, a shrine to him. He has like, it's, it's just a little one room, a one room shrine. He, he's kind of in a glass case and you can, uh, it's kind of open at the bottom so you can slip him presents and things. And the walls are just covered with notes and photographs and uh, these things called ex votos. They're like usually pressed, some sort of pressed metal that are in the shape of the thing that you're praying for. So there's a lot of babies, people, but also, you know, like legs and hearts. And oh, I have like, one that's like Milagros. Just kind of, yes, exactly. Yeah. They're, they're just, they're bigger though. I've never actually known what they were. I'm glad you told me. Yeah, that's what they are. They're, oh, cool. they're just as a, usually if you pray for something and then you have your prayer answered, then you bring one of those to the shrine as, um, oh. as an acknowledgement. I love the idea that he started out as a sort of purgatorial figure. You know, he could be a patron saint for purgatory. This guy who we don't know who he is. We don't know where he came from. We don't know where he is now. I could really strongly identify with that kind of saint. The souls in purgatory, I think, are just super interesting just because they're liminal and they can, they're, they're ghosts, really. They can come to this world and do sort of the Ebenezer Scrooge scared straight, um, <laughs> you know, and they're, they're on their way to heaven, but they're not there yet. They're kind of stuck in this smaller version of hell. I love thinking about purgatory, too, and I actually find it extremely comforting and I can see why that's a teaching that evolved from popular faith. There's something very frightening to me about heaven for some reason. <laughs> so it's, it seems very sterile and I don't think I'm quite good enough. So maybe I could be made ready yeah. better. The practice of memento mori, meditating on one's death, has a rich Christian history. The new death positivity movement is being led by secular champions like author and mortician Caitlin Doty, who recognize that our cultural fear of death and our resistance to talking openly about it 
is killing us. We've lost important rituals and cultural frameworks, the ars moriendi, or the art of dying, and that only makes coping with death more difficult and more dangerous. In the next bit of our interview, I asked Elizabeth Harper how her faith makes her approach to death positivity different. So what is death positivity? So uh, death positivity is, it's interesting because coming at it from a Catholic point of view, it's obvious, Mm -hmm. especially Italian Catholics tend to be very open about death. I mean, when Caitlin started talking about death positivity and bringing death out in the open and making it a thing we can talk about, and one of her things is being able to have a home funeral, like that there there can be an interaction with the body. We don't have to send it away and never touch it again. It's not a thing that's taboo. Part of me was like, yeah, duh. (laughs) But that's less common here. What separates sort of my view from my secular colleagues is that I focus more on, I guess, on that sort of, on that liminality after death about, you know, how that relationship continues and what does it mean to to have a relationship with someone who's dead or someone who's been dead a long time who you never knew or, you know, have sort of access to the divine through death. So where do you think this fascination comes from for you? this attraction to thinking about death or what comes after death? Is this just something that's always been in you or was there an event? There's no event. Although I will say that it's, you know, all that stuff we were talking about with St. Catherine of Siena, I think it's directly tied to thinking about my body as a woman, as sort of grappling with how, how difficult that can be. I think that the female body in particular, because it's such a contradiction, it is tied up with making other life and and renewing life but also with decay and sin and i i think that yeah my my interest in death comes from thinking about the female body and existing in one how has your writing about these topics changed or evolved since you started doing this and how has your i think that's tangentially related to Another question, which is how is your how has it changed your perspective on your faith or your religious sensibility? When I started, it was it was definitely from a sort of more touristic place. I knew about it and I lived it, but I was sort of more interested in sort of just showing other people the sites and doing sort of a little explainer. What it came to be is more of an unpacking. And at first it was, my impulse was to sort of unpack myself. And Mm -hmm. now I think my impulse is to culturally unpack all of the art, all of the visual symbols and all of the spiritual implications. So I think my writing has gotten much more serious and my faith has gotten much more serious that I think about the religious implications of these beliefs or where did these beliefs come from? Where did I find them? What, why am I drawn to them? What attracts people to these stories and images and what, what is this ongoing attraction? Is it just an attraction to the macabre or to the weird? I think it manifests that, but the thing that I, I really have in common with the death positive movement is that I think that a lot of people in today's world I mean, even in the modern cultures where these things still exist, I think we have a, 
a deep hole in our soul about our mortality and the denial of death and the idea that that youth is something that we have to hold on to and that aging can be cured with science. I think that's made a big hole in our souls. And I think that when we're drawn to these sites, that sort of macabre fascination is a way to try to, to try to fill that. And I think if you keep going, the, the spirituality is a way to counteract that. I don't know about the Octave of the Dead. Tell me about the Octave of the Dead. The Octave of the Dead used to be eight days on the liturgical calendar. It encompassed All Souls Day and All Saints Day. And one of my favorite trips, actually, was I went, I was in Rome for All Souls Day. And they open up all of the crypts, and they bring out all of the relics, and the priests wear these amazing uh, chasubles, like black velvet with skulls embroidered on them. And there's like a parade where you can like go into this crypt that's only open once a year. And there's a, a mass for all of the forgotten dead by the Tiber. It's really beautiful. But during the Octave of the Dead, there's one particular crypt in Rome that back in the 1700s, so the church is called, it translates to like um, Holy Mary of Prayer and Death. Mm. And they open their crypt and they used to collect all of the dead who died in the fields, usually of malaria, but they were, these were people who couldn't afford a burial. So they would take their little stretcher out to the fields and bring in the dead workers. And then they would give them a Catholic burial in their crypt. But during the octave of the dead, they would make these, I want to call them tableau vivants, but that means alive. And it, they were not alive. They would prop up the dead and costume them and add wax figures and basically make like a Catholic haunted house that people would walk through. So when you go downstairs to their crypt, there's like a, a giant skull that's like, I don't know, like three feet tall. That was one of their props. And there's, there's a skive and that was one of their props, but it's like propped up next to an absolutely real human skeleton. And there's like a shelf of engraved skulls for like the important people who died who were actually part of this confraternity. But yeah, they, there, uh, there were several of these types of confraternities that would collect people and put on these scenes for the Octave of the Dead. There was another one whose building doesn't exist anymore, but they collected all of the patients from the hospital and they were usually buried in like mass graves, but they would open the mass graves and kind of prop people up and have angels like grabbing them. And that would be like the wow. souls in purgatory going to heaven. Oh my gosh. How do you celebrate Halloween and the Octave of the Dead yourself and All Saints Day, which is my favorite of all. All Saints and All Souls Day is a, yeah. it's a really beautiful thing. And the fact that those two days are back to back, I think it shows the similarities. Uh, I personally, I've been to a couple different cultural celebrations. Like I said, I, I've been to Italy for that. I've been to Mexico for Dia de los Muertos. So for me, it's less about, you know, trick-or-treating. And I, I think the sexification of Halloween is sad and unfortunate and speaks to our discomfort with death and our fascination with youth and life and beauty. Yeah, say um, more about that. That's interesting. I think that sexy Halloween kind of bums me out. Just because we took this All Souls, All Saints Day that was supposed to be a time to think about death and 
sort of turned it on its head and made it a thing about, like I said, life and beauty and youth. Yeah. Um, and that's not to say, you know, dressing sexy isn't a good time. I'm not, I don't want to shame anyone. You should, as far as I'm concerned, you should dress like that every day of the year and just right. leave, if you want to, <laughs> leave a day for, for death. Yeah. Um, so there's yeah, a solemnity to, to yeah. the Catholic holidays surrounding All Saints and All Souls Day that is lost. I, and that's why I do, you know, I do, I'm concerned about the Dia de los Muertos celebration in LA. You know, it's always important to me to look at, you know, who's organizing this and, you know, who's mm-hmm. invited, like, who is this for? Um, yeah. I, we, we shouldn't just go sort of cannibalize that culture because we've, that we've hollowed out ours and and then due to uh day of the dead what we've done to halloween which is make it about face paint and sugar and yeah it it's much bigger than that so i do enjoy celebrating all saints and all souls day i love dia de los muertes i think it's important to take in the the context of that and what we as a modern society have done to our own celebration of death yeah so how are you preserving your own sense of solemnity around that time or seriousness? You know, in it, it's harder to do when you kind of have to do it by, by yourself. I do it by, you know, I have a little side table where I sort of mingle my Halloween decorations with photographs of my grandparents and people who have died and have a little altar of candles and things like that and of course you know all saints day is a a mass to go to like that's there's always something you can do the side that actually respects and honors the dead instead of making it into a joke or an opportunity to wear a sexy nurse costume Wear a sexy nurse costume, like just do know, that. All the other days of the work. year, yeah. all the other days of the year, it's fine. <laughs> Respect the dead. <laughs> You've been listening to the Image Podcast, produced by Cassidy Hall. Our music is by Sister Sinjin. To subscribe to the print journal, please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can also learn about all previous episodes of the podcast and find links to our show notes and links to resources discussed in the interview. You can also access back issues of the journal through the Image Archive and read Elizabeth Harper's essay, The Cult of the Beheaded. We'll be back in two weeks with further exploration of art, faith, and mystery. Until then, if you liked what you heard, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. It really helps to get the word out.